Hopefully you've got an outline there that was in your papers as you came in. I hope that helps you get a sense for where we're going because we're reaching these final chapters in this epic book of Judges. And the book of Judges, as it closes out, it's been a tough read in some ways. It hasn't been a happy kind of time for the people of God. But these final chapters do not represent a Disney movie ending. There's no kind of twist and we discover as the reader that everything is all right now. No, as the book continues even to the end, this darkness continues to be present and there is, very, there is a very little sense of hope. The nation of Israel has been so blessed by God. God has shown incredible kindness to him. He's rescued them. He's placed them in this land of Canaan. He's given them the promise of victory and protection and all that they could want. But the book of Judges is essentially God's people throwing God's kindness back into his face. And so as we come to chapter 17 and 18 in this downhill descent of the nation of Israel, we come across this phenomena where as Israel continue to descend, you might expect for them just to reject God. You might expect for them to disown themselves of God. But that's not what we see in chapters 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul, as he's speaking to a church, in the New Testament, actually observes this kind of phenomena. He says that these people have a form of godliness. On the outside, it looks like they're ticking religious boxes, but on the inside, in their hearts, their hearts are far from God. And this phenomena we see illustrated for us in chapters 17 and 18. It's a phenomena that we might call Christian atheism or religious atheism. Because in chapters 17 and 18, the nation of Israel, well, believe in God. But practically speaking, they don't live like that. They live like they don't believe in God. They live like atheists. They live like the nations around them. And as you see the story of Israel, this might, um, for some of us, remind you of the time that we live in. The time of Christian decline. We read in papers, we see in media that people less and less are attending churches. Churches are in the decline, at least in the West, is the narrative that we're given. And I think for a large extent that's true. Certainly not true in other parts of the world, like in China and in South America. Christianity is on the rise. It's on the ascendancy. But largely in the West, Christianity is in decline. It has been so dominant on the landscape of Western culture that it's been hard to separate Christianity and Western culture. However, that's not the case these days, is it? It's not the case for the way our kids, if we have kids, this is not the world that they're growing up in. They're not growing up in a Christian country or a Christian culture. We're in this zone that's termed post-Christian. And many writers, thinkers, philosophers, theologians have sought to understand this. 
And one of them is, a, is an Australian guy, and I think he's very helpful, called Mark Sayers, and he writes in this book, The Disappearing Church. He says that in this post-Christian environment, we don't abandon Christian faith as a society. God isn't totally done away with. I mean, there are some who do, but even people like Richard Dawkins are very much in the minority and are are much criticised by many who aren't Christian in our world. Now, he says, they don't bludgeon you out of your faith. They subtly coax you, each option quietly proclaiming a kind of gospel in itself in which the good life can be yours. He says that the reason why Christianity is on the decline isn't because people have just run away from God wholesale. No, it's been this slow, steady, walking and drifting away from God. And he speaks about this in terms of soft power, a notion that we um, hear in diplomacy, that of subtle influence. He goes on to say this, we are experiencing, sorry, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of personal will. See what he says? It's not as if God is eradicated. No. Something else replaces God. If we're going to do away with God as a society, we will have a God. But it won't be the God of Israel. It won't be the God of the Bible. If we're going to do away with God as a society, Sayer says... We'll place ourselves in that position. We'll enthrone ourselves, our own preferences, what we want. Sayers goes on to say that this has happened in our Western society. It's been, uh, these ideas have been around for a while. They've been lubricated, though, by technology. Uh, myths have been distributed through these forms of technology. Uh, They're spoken even in religious terms, a kind of secular heaven is given to us with pleasure and peace and possibility. And that's the situation that God's people are in. It's soft power at work here in Judges chapters 17 and 18. Last week we saw that Samson, this warrior of God, this mighty man of great strength, had a significant weakness. His weakness was indeed his strength, his trust in himself. And this idea, I think, is picked up in chapter 17. So why don't you turn to Judges chapter 17? Because we see this story of Micah, a man named, unmentioned previously in the book of Judges. And this man, Micah, is listening in to his mum. And his mum is uttering this curse on the person who stole her money. Now, I, as a kid, did a lot of naughty things, but I never stole from my mother's purse because she knew exactly how much money she had in her purse, but not so Micah, because as his mum utters a curse on the person who stole the money, it turns out it was him who stole the money, 
and he believes in God enough to be scared of the curse. So he goes to her and he says, oh, mum, look, I'm sorry, it was me. I took the money, here's the money back. Please, please, mum, take back the curse. Well, this mum is so grateful. What a great son, admitting his mistake. And so not only does she take back the curse, but she wants to commemorate this moment. You know, mums love, very proud of their kids, aren't they? Dads are proud of the kids. Well, this mum is proud. Fantastic kid. And she wants to say thank you to God. And so what she does is she wants to make a statue of God. She even cloaks it in religious language there in chapter 17 verse 2 she says oh the lord bless you my son is this a common case of forgiveness i don't think so here's a mother who is avoiding the issue it's not forgiveness she's dismissing her son's clear error and moral failure uh, i know we have a number of teachers here at our church, both here in the afternoon and also in the morning, and uh, the teachers tell me that increasingly parents today have this inability to conceive of their child doing anything wrong. And this is the case here. But it's clothed in religious language to almost sanctify the action. Now notice that she is making this image, but it's not of a, you know, it's not of one of those foreign gods, Baal, or something like that. No, it's of, it's of the real God that she's making an image. So what's the problem with that? What's well, there in the first point? Christian atheism redefines God rather than submits to him. What this woman does as she seeks to carve an image of God to represent him in a physical manner is in clear violation of the second commandment, that we are not to make any images in the likeness of God. Now, just let me stop here. Uh, a lot of us might be thinking, yeah, look, I get the first commandment that we're not to worship other gods, but what's the big deal about making an image of God? Is, is this anti-art, for example? Well, here is why there's a prohibition to make not make art, but to make an image of God. An image cannot possibly capture the full range of God's glory. So inevitably, in your, the, the idol that's made is not in God's image, but whose image? Whoever makes the image. And so what that does is it highlights the parts of perhaps God's nature, that appeal to us and conceal other parts of God's nature that don't. You might magnify God's strength, for example, but obscure his compassion. Or you might celebrate his grace while ignoring his justice. And whatever you do in making an image of God, you are distorting who God really is. A God not as he is, but as you want him to be which is not a real God at all. It's simply a deified version of ourselves. It's a rejection of God and a choice of ourself. And hand in hand with that 
comes the redefinition of morality. Have a look there in verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The writer seems it appropriate to make a comment about not what this woman's doing in particular, but what everyone is doing in Israel. Here is what's going on, not just in Micah's household and Micah's mum, but here's what's going all over Israel. As Israel have turned away from God, this hasn't just been spiritual mumbo-jumbo out there, it's affected the morality, the way people see each other and treat each other, and we'll see that to devastating effect next week in some of the most horrific passages in the Bible. Because just as you redefine God, you redefine right and wrong according to your own preferences. And we, in many ways, do this all the time. Not many of us who have been Christian for a while, this does happen, but not many of us. Um, In the 20 years or so that I've been in Christian ministry, I've not seen many people completely walk away from being Christian. What I have seen countless times is people slowly just shifting their picture of God and drifting slowly away from him. The problem is that it is a full-scale rejection of God, even if it is so very subtle. Imagine if um, this amazing writer came up to you and they said, look, you know, Stu, M, Tom, Tom, your life is so amazing. Your life's so amazing, so interesting. You know what we want to do? We want to write a biography about Tom. And um, Tom, we just want to get all the details of your life, how good you are at hockey, what a great husband you are, and this kind of thing. And uh, you give him, Tom, all the details. And you think, this is great. I've got to hear about my life. Fantastic. And then the writer says, well, actually, um, Tom, thank you for those details, but I just... I'd like to add a couple of things. Uh, I think you probably left some things out, like that you were a a failed bus driver and uh, that you're a bit of a loner and that you you live by yourself at home with 15 cats. Now, at this point, Tom might think, well, look, that's all very nice, but that's not actually who I am. That doesn't represent my life. If you're going to write a biography, who I am, don't you... No, 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 the writer says. This will make it more interesting. People want to hear this. This is a rejection of who the real person is for a version of who someone thinks they ought to be to make them more interesting or to make them more acceptable. And we do this all the time with God. We project on him the kind of version that we want him to be. We do this all the time. We do it when we make decisions. We do it when we justify things by saying, oh, look, I prayed and God gave me a peace about this decision. But what has more weight to you? What God says or what you want? The word of God or your want? Here is Israel. Their lives are driven by what they want God to be, not what he says he is. And they're living like they're the king. And we so often live like we're the king of our lives. And it's so ordinary. 
There's nothing drastic about it. It's so ordinary. So how would we know that that's not happening? Well, here's the third point on your outline. Religious atheism uses God rather than worships him. And this is where the story uh, continues because a Levite comes from Bethlehem. Now, Levites are a special class within the nation of Israel. They're What's their role? Does anyone know their role in Israel? They're priests. Al, this Levite comes down from Bethlehem. And guess whose house he knocks on? He knocks on old Micah's house. Now, just a little bit of background. Israel, when they moved into the land, was subdivided, like by this kind of surveyor, into these 11 plots. But there's one problem with that, isn't there? There's not 11 tribes. There's 12 tribes. You know why? Well, the Levites didn't have their own land. They had their own cities within each allocated lot. So they could minister to the people there. And this is actually very interesting. We do not hear much about the the Levites in the book of Judges. You know why? Well, it's a bit like when Australia's in an economic boom. Marty loves it when Australia's in an economic boom because he's a builder. And builders are busy in an economic boom. Well, in an idolatry boom, priests aren't too busy. You don't need them. So here he is, wandering around. And he knocks on Micah's door there in verses 7 to 8. And Micah makes this statue and puts it in his house. And then he thinks, oh, this must be God's providence. Here's his priest to, well, to approve to authenticate, you know, what I've done. I've made this nice little statue of God, put him on my shelf, and here I can get the, you know, the divine blessing from this God-man. Well, the priest says, look, you know, technically, Micah, you shouldn't do that. But listen, how much are you paying? Micah says, a lot. And the priest says, I've just got to go and pray about this. And then he says, I feel like God has called me to say, yes, Micah, I will be your personal priest for you and your idol. You see, religious atheism uses God rather than worships him. And here Micah assumes two things. Firstly, that God exists to serve him. I mean, this is why he needs his own little pet version of God on his shelf in his house. And God even sends to him his own personal priest, like a divine, um, you know, valet. If Micah, and the second thing that Micah assumes is that if Micah does the right things, then God is obligated to bless him. But the great substitute for true faith in God is this kind of form, this kind of appearance of what looks spiritual, and it's built on these two premises, that God exists for you, for me, and that, you know, if you do the right things, if you play your cards right with God, well, then he owes you. But friends, this is a long way from biblical Christianity, because true faith says God You don't exist for me. I exist for you. And you don't owe me anything. You don't even owe me the breath I take every minute of the day. I owe everything to you. 
the form of religious practice seeks to use God. How can I get God to help me in my business? How can I get God to make my family all nice and good? How can I get God to improve my health? And then, well, when this doesn't happen, the form of religion says, God, you know what? I did all those things for you. I served you in this way. I gave money here. I've done all these things and I've behaved and look what has happened. You've disappointed me, God. But biblical Christianity says, God, what do you want with my life? You made me. You've given me all that I have. And my life is yours. And even though I go through hard times, someone who trusts in God says, I still can't believe, even though this is so painful, I still can't believe you love me and that you're taking me home to be with you. How can I glorify you in this? False religion, a form of religion, wants to control God. It's got to do with God, but it's got to do for with God for our own ends. True faith doesn't seek to manipulate God. It simply surrenders to who he actually is, not who we want him to be. And so we need to ask ourselves, what kind of God are we seeking? Are we seeking a God that we can manipulate and control, that he can conform to our preconditions of what we think he should be? Or are we letting him speak to us in his word to declare his majesty, his glory, his size, who he is in his holiness and glory? Micah isn't doing this. Have a look in verse 13. Because as this priest rocks up, this has sealed the deal with God. Now I know, he says in verse 13, that the Lord will be good to me. Since this Levite has become my priest, this Levite now is his pet. And the worship of God exists only to serve Micah's prosperity, his preferences. But this is not what the worship of God is for. It's not about us. It's not about our preferences who cares what our preferences are? What are God's preferences? What does he want from us? This is one of the reasons why church shopping, I think, so often ends in spiritual decline. People who will not find a church and stick to it. Now, many of us know, and I know this, our church is less than perfect. You know the reason for that? There's less than perfect people in it me included, perhaps especially. And here's the reality. Being part of a church isn't about our church fulfilling your preferences or satisfying your checklist of what you think a church should be. Being part of a church is learning about God's faithfulness. God is faithful to these people, even though they don't deserve it. And when we say, this is our church, come hell or high water. We're learning to be like God. We're learning to be committed to a group of people no matter what happens. 
There's two results you'll see on your outline that occur. There's two implications that we see here in this text when God is used, when God is diminished. I don't know if you've ever lost, perhaps if you do have children or you can remember being a child, if you've lost a kid's favourite teddy bear, especially at bedtime. Uh, you know, you're kind of, they, they can't find, you know, where's Teddy? And then you're rummaging through the whole house because this is a big thing that you've got to find, otherwise the kid is going mental. I see the mum smiling at me. Some of the men in here probably have forgotten this, but let me change it for you. What happens when you've lost the remote control? That's kind of the equivalent, isn't it? Uh, you're searching all over the house for the remote control. Well, this is what Micah's doing. As there's a form, as there's an appearance that he's into God in some way, he's so reduced God. He's so reduced God to like this divine teddy bear that he can put up on a shelf. And so the consequence of that is that losing nothing feels like losing everything. Because in the next chapter, in chapter 18, they're under statue anxiety. Chapter 18, these threats to his little teddy bear come. They come because they've got more money than he does. And they persuade this personal pet priest of Micah to leave Micah and come with them and take Micah's statue. And Micah comes to them and says to them, hey, you can't do that, that's my priest. That's my statue. And they say in verse 23, they object, Micah, a bit overdramatic here, a little emotional. But Micah won't have it. Have a look at verse 24. It's almost a dummy spit. You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? He's lost the wooden statue He's lost the priest. Now everything is just so terrible for Micah because when you worship God falsely, losing nothing feels like losing everything. It's pathetic Micah here is clutching after the God that he pretends that statue to be, that it can be taken away, that it can be bought and sold. That is no God at all. But this is what Micah has been reduced to. And the small things just send him over the edge. The small things often send us over the edge, don't they? It's the person cutting in front of you. It's the person in the queue at IGA who has 13 items in the line that says 12 items or less. It's the little things. And that's the point. That if you shrink God down to size, a size that you can control. A size for Micah literally that he could place on a shelf. But for us, we shrink God down. We don't want him dictating to us our idea of what our life should be. We shrink him down when we don't listen to him. We shrink him down when we think we know what he is. And then this happens. We always live in fear of losing him. If you have a small God, You'll always be worried about losing him behind the back of the couch. But when you surrender to the true God, you quit worrying because you know that he'll never lose you.
losing nothing feels like every, losing everything. And secondly, the second consequence or result is that losing everything feels like losing nothing. Because here is Israel. At the closing sections of the book of Judges, here they are, time after time after time. God has sent saviors, rescuers. He sent the guy that we saw last week, Samuel. He hasn't sent a judge this time. There is no saviour for Israel. And slowly, they just keep walking away. Pick it up there in chapter 18, verse 30. The Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and the sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of their captivity of the land. Do you get that? Here they are, just so slowly, but with such determination, moving away from God. For how long? For hundreds of years after, until they're taken into captivity in Babylon, until the time they continued, all the time, verse 31. And here is a tragic end. Moses, this man who has rescued God out of Egypt, his grandson, or it could be his great-great-grandson, is named as this priest, this priest who is walking around without a job, we hear has royal blood. And here Moses' great-grandson is leading the people of God into false worship. They set up Micah, Micah's image as a carved uh, image of God. How could it go so wrong? Well, you never know. It's just so ordinary. It's just so normal. And evil is always like that. Hannah Arrett grappled with this when she reported for the New Yorker in 1961 on the war crime trial of Adolf Eichmann. Anyone familiar with Hannah Arnett? Yet Hannah Arnett was the journalist who reported on Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi operator. Basically, he was the logistics manager uh, for the death camps. And they sent her over. She was, a, she was a journalist, philosopher, really smart woman. And they sent her over to the trials and, uh, in Germany. And here she was with this kind of conception of this evil monster, this Nazi who had contributed to thousands, millions of people being killed in the final solution. But there, Hannah Arendt found Eichmann as not a monster, but as an ordinary man. Bland, a bureaucrat, a middle manager. And in her words, neither perverted nor sadistic, but terrifyingly normal. This is how evil works. This is how the decline of Israel away from God worked. It wasn't some revolution overnight. It was a slow, steady drip, drip. It was like moss growing up in the Wadagang Mountains where I used to spend a bit of time. There's these beautiful, tall Australian red cedar trees. And um, there's this noxious weed that um, 
starts to grow around the trunk and it takes years and years and eventually this weed will cover the whole canopy of the tree and often suffocates the tree out. And this is exactly, I think, a picture of what the nature of spiritual decline looks like. It looks like that in Israel and I think it looks like that in the Christian life as well. It's ordinary, it's mundane, it's soft power. It's a soft power reality. And so we see in this passage here today a warning. It's a serious warning. It's a sober warning. That if we sit on the throne of our lives, this is the consequence. If we redefine God rather than submit to him, if we use God rather than worship him, this is what happens. We'll find ourselves just slowly drifting away from God. But friends, this is not all that the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us, as we've already done here this afternoon, the Bible tells us that we can can stop. We can turn. Here's what the nation of Israel don't do. They do not repent. They do not acknowledge that this vine is slowly choking the life out of them. And friends, we need to acknowledge that we exist in a world that has its tentacles on us and too often this vine chokes us out and we need to repent we need to turn back and this is a wonderful thing repentance in the scriptures is not a dreaded thing it's the most liberating and joyous thing for us to enjoy because Jesus says as he has dinner with the Pharisees there's a sinful woman there he looks at this sinful woman he says he who has been forgiven little loves little but he who has been forgiven much loves much we have the joy of recognizing that it could be just the situation that we're in it might not be that we're walking away from church although that's a very essential and often common first step in people's spiritual decline but jesus gives us forgiveness He knows what we're like. He knows that in the human heart and in all our hearts, we'll put anything else within our hearts rather than God that we'll place ourselves on his throne. But here's the gospel. God has left the throne of heaven for us because we've placed ourselves on his throne In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. It might seem as though the answer to Israel's problem as they descend further and further into the darkness is a king. But a couple of hundred years later, you know what? They get a king. They get a king, Saul. But his heart is far from God. But then after Saul, they get another king. He's not just a king. His heart is close to God. But Hundreds of years later, after that king, King David, by the time of Jeroboam, we hear that just like Micah, Jeroboam sets up places of worship wherever he wanted, erected images of God for him to worship and ordained his own priests at his own shrines. See, in Judges, there was no king. And so it seems as though the solution is a king or in kings, But there were kings, but they did exactly what we do. They did 
what Israel did. They did what was right in their own eyes. The answer is never a person. The answer is the ultimate king because there was a king who did only what was right in God's eyes that we would be right in his eyes. And he has a reign of love and his will for your life is better than whatever you can conceive. Whatever you think your life should be, his reign of love is so much better than what we can think for ourselves. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we seeking this king and his reign of love and his direction and the worship of him as he really is? Are you seeking this God in your life? Because submission to this king is never passive. It doesn't just happen. And that is why we're called to pray by this king. This king teaches us to pray. He says, not my will be done. This king teaches us to pray and he says, your will be done. May your kingdom come even when it hurts. May your kingdom come even when it's uncomfortable. May your kingdom come even when it requires sacrifice, even when it looks and feels worse than you think it should be. Here is his royal rule of love over your life. And may we long for his rule in our lives and in our church. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing.